Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 177. Thank you for joining us. Today, Colby's Everett Bayarski joins Bonnie and I to welcome writer, teacher, game designer, and Colby alumnus Alexi Sargent to the Colby Cast. Our conversation takes us from Alexi's days with Colby through writing and game design, all the way to his most recent work on a children's book about saints and their animal friends. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom of four lads and lasses, liturgical musician, popcorn, and podcast fanatic. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. Hi, Stephen. What's a good word? My word for the day is collaboration. Okay. Collaboration. I'm writing it down. We'll see if that fits in. And I will save my comments on collaboration versus accompaniment from a pianist perspective for another day because <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of thoughts on those, but that's not pertinent to this conversation. Uh, joining us today is Everett Bayarski, Colby's Academic Services Director. Hi, Everett. Good afternoon. Happy to be back with you. It's always good to have you. Everett's a good friend of the Colby cast. Uh, we have among us a Colby alumnus we're very glad to get to visit with today. Alexi Sargent, welcome to the Colby cast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Been looking forward to this. Glad it has worked out for uh, us to visit today. Would you tell us a bit about yourself and your Colby connection? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I'm Alexi Sargent. I currently live in Maryland with my wife and daughters, and I I teach at a classical Catholic school. Uh, When I was in high school, I used the Colby curriculum as a homeschooler and uh, this provided a strong foundation for my homeschool endeavors and set me up well to uh, go on to college at Yale University and then off into the world, including working in several uh, working in several educational institutions along the way. Good deal. You describe yourself on your website as a writer, a theater maker, and a game creator. Those are topics we're looking forward to talking in more depth about today. Would you tell us a bit about going to Yale from Colby? How was that? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to Yale and specifically as a freshman, I did the program Directed Studies at Yale, which is essentially Yale's uh, great books track for freshmen. So that was something I was kind of particularly well set up for thanks to the Colby curriculum. You know, I had read for the first time ancient Greek dramas and the brothers Karamazov, right, you know, as part of uh, my Colby studies. And so I had some uh, foundation already in place when I took this kind of intensive one-year Yale course that is uh, all about those great books and all about seminaring on great books. I got to, you know, have some experience to draw on as I was then in seminar with uh, really impressive fellow students at Yale talking about these powerful texts from the tradition. One of the things that we always love hearing is from our alumni about uh, about how well they were prepared for college and how that went. Yeah. Um, what what was that? Uh, you mentioned briefly about that, but was the did you find Yale to be more challenging than expected? About as challenging as expected? Um, maybe a little easier than expected? Kind of what was that like for you going from? Especially a lot of people have this idea that that homeschoolers are really poorly prepared for college, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't tend to be our experience. But you talk about you know maybe how that fit into your expectations uh, as you're heading off there your freshman year. Yeah, absolutely. I think I 
felt very confident. And for the most part, that was borne out. Uh, I had a lot of experience of being on top of my own time management as a homeschooled high school student. And that proved to be very crucial for college where you're taking classes, you know, with wonderful professors, but there's no uh, coordination already there. It's all on you, the student, to make sure you're keeping on top of uh, all of the things you're being asked to do, all of the the reading you need to take care of and the tasks you need to accomplish. There's no, there's no bell. There's no principle uh, pointing the way necessarily. And so having some experience of you know structured independence from my homeschool background and from using the Colby curriculum was, I think, a good preparation for what I encountered at Yale. One of the other pieces that we love talking, especially with our Colby alum, is are there any uh, just favorite memories or things that stood out to you from your homeschooling journey that uh, just, you know, even looking back now that you think it was really great being homeschooled? <laughs> Yes, there are. I think some of the biggest things I'd highlight were, you know, homeschool extracurriculars that were made possible by the flexibility, right, of homeschooling. So I directed several Shakespeare plays while I was a homeschool high school student. There was a student run Shakespeare group that emerged out of the homeschool community in my area. And so I got to act in several plays and then eventually direct Merchant of Venice and Macbeth. That continues now. I can see how it's influenced what you're up to these days, right? And, and... It has. Yeah, I've continued. Uh, Shakespeare is a you know lifelong interest now. And I've continued getting, um, I've continued to appreciate the chance to direct Shakespeare when I get it. I found a few very interesting articles you've written about Shakespeare Shakespeare's plays in um elements of faith and virtue and repentance in some and some of your writing online i found that just lots of food for thought there he's a he's a great writer you know uh this shakespeare guy he 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 knew his stuff do you have any uh, words of encouragement for students who are about to meet shakespeare this year for the first time in their courses yes i think don't be upset if you don't understand all the language at first Try reading it aloud, sometimes a couple times. This is drama, right? This is meant to be heard. And sometimes things will just click when you hear it aloud. Or if you're having trouble and you're allowed to do this, you'll know, find a recording of a professional actor taking on this text. And then you'll see how with some understanding and some textual skills, an actor can make a text really come alive and suddenly seem totally clear, even if you were you know, lost on the page, right? Shakespeare wrote words that were meant to be performed, meant to be spoken aloud. And when we speak them and perform them, often they all fall into place. I think that's so crucial when when getting to a lot of the works that we're reading within the within the kind of the Western canon is that there are so many of those works that are designed to be done orally um, or that that would be best understood orally. For me, one of the examples that just uh, shines out is the uh, when reading Plato's Symposium um, is at the end of it, there's this uh, Diotima's Ladder is this famous kind of explanation of, of beauty. Uh, and I'd read it multiple times, and I just I couldn't get it put together. Uh, but I had the opportunity to participate in a, a reading with a, a group of, of other students uh, and faculty. And when you know the woman who was reading Adam's part got up there and actually did it as a reading, all of a sudden all of the pieces just clicked. 
um, and I started scribbling notes madly uh, to kind of put the outline together where it actually made sense as a, as a, as a text in a way that didn't when I just tried to read it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm reading that work with high school juniors nice. right now. So I will keep that thought in mind about how to uh, help people understand it as a uh, as a speech, right? Because this is a series of speeches of uh, of toasts, as it were, kind of raised to the God of love. So it makes sense that it would all come together with the with the, the spoken voice. Well, tell us about that. So now you teach. Tell us about what you're up to these days. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm starting uh, my second year teaching at the St. Jerome Institute, which is a uh, Catholic liberal arts high school in Washington, D.C. We're very great books focused. I teach humanities and the spine of the humanities course is a series of great works that I'm sure sound familiar to uh, Colby students and Colby parents. With the freshmen, we're reading things like the Odyssey and the Aeneid, Beowulf, Song of Roland, uh, eventually the Old Man and the Sea, and Notes from Underground. With the juniors, the reading list has things like Plato's Symposium, uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, Augustine's Confessions, and several Shakespeare plays. Uh, then we turn to the moderns and we read a little bit of Locke, a little bit of Hobbes, getting a sense of this uh, this new world. Um some novels, Pride and Prejudice, Frankenstein, uh, this year wrapping up with Brave New World, and then C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man as kind of counterpoints there. Do many of the students come from a, a classical formation to that point, or is this going to be sort of all new for them once they come to the school where you teach now? Yeah, two of the main places our students come from are the St. Jerome Academy, which is a classical lower school and one that's been okay. been operating for, you know, a a decade now uh, under a classical model here in Hyattsville, Maryland. And then there's also a lot of homeschool students who are coming from a homeschool background to this this high school. And so depending on what they've been doing for homeschooling, they may or may not have encountered these works in this way before. Um, but uh, I think it's, it's a pretty good school for people coming from homeschooling uh, insofar as uh, especially Christian homeschooling families, there's a very strong set of Christian values to uh, the school too. So it's hopefully not a, not a not as difficult to transition as it might be going from homeschooling to a, a more traditional format of high school here. In my in my own family growing up, I'll say we always took it one year at a time, whether we're going to homeschool or do a different program. And so I ended up you know using Colby and going all the way through high school. My brothers uh, made the switch, right? At high school, they switched and they went to a private Catholic school in Philadelphia. Uh, my sister did kind of a did kind of a mix, uh, you know, partial homeschool and then um, part time with a more a more intensive homeschool co op with uh, you know a building and uniforms and a bell and everything like that. So we kind of always took it as our model that we were going to mix and match as needed and find what was right for for each kid for each student and you know treat homeschooling as one of our one of our options and a uh you know thing that we could um we could go from to a different uh, a different format of of schooling for me it worked well to homeschool all the way through but uh for my siblings we made different choices based on each person's need each year 
And that's, I think that's, that's really the beauty of what you just described is the beauty of, of homeschooling. And certainly the, the one year at a time approach is very much what, uh, especially for people who are new to homeschooling, you know, they can feel that, you know, getting into homeschooling, that they suddenly have to make a decision that affects the rest of their lives, that they have to you know, go all in and commit for the next 10 years. Uh, and it's very much not the case is that, that right as a parent, you should be educationist and ongoing discernment about what's best for um, a specific student, what's best for your family, what's best for, for each of the individual students. Uh, so I think that's a beautiful piece of advice and a great way to approach that, that idea that the parent is the primary educator of the child and should be making decisions about what is going to be best. Yeah, exactly. Do you do much with theater at your school? Do you have stage productions there? Yes, I've gotten the opportunity to direct Shakespeare at the St. Jerome Institute, which is wonderful. There's a group, you know, we call ourselves the St. Genesian Players. Uh, and so last year we put on Twelfth Night. Uh, this year, we're about, I'm about to hold auditions for a production of The Winter's Tale. So it's very exciting to get to introduce these Shakespeare plays to the students and then put them on for the school and the broader community. Uh, I'm really, really proud of what the students uh, did last year and excited for the production this year. The Winter's Tale is actually in one of the articles I was referring to earlier. So let's talk about your writing. You're published in, in many places. We can find your writing online. Do you have as much time for that these days with the St. Jerome Institute or how do you fit it all in now? Oh, it's a great question. Um, I have to have to prioritize a little. So there have been periods of my life where more of what I've done has been freelance writing. And so I've gotten the chance to place articles in uh, publications I am really glad to be part of. Um, First Things, uh, The New Atlantis, uh, New Criterion, Plow, uh, Aletea, which maybe is where you saw the, uh, the Winter's Tale article mm -hmm. reflecting on the kind of Lenten themes of Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. Um, so now I have less time to do that because teaching is a uh, semi-all-consuming uh, task. Certainly last year when it was my first year, it was fairly all-consuming. Um, but uh, I still value the chance to sometimes get to to place pieces, um, uh, peace of mind about uh, manliness, uh, essentially about you know, masculine virtue and, you know, the need for men of fidelity uh, came out in Plow sometime last year. And I was very pleased to to have that out there because in some ways that brought together many of the themes and works I care about most. I think I worked in references to uh, John Paul II and uh, G.K. Chesterton and the uh, the film Secondhand Lions uh, so you know all all the greats, all the all the biggest, uh, most important voices on this topic. Um, but yeah, in, in some ways, I'm prioritizing you know the topics I care about the very most since I have less time for freelance writing right now. But uh, it's all you know it's all kind of year by year, you know, situation by situation, figuring out you know what is going to be the uh, best way to to use the use the talents and to use the interests that I have, uh, hopefully to bring glory to God and, you know, edify my audience. Kind of that continued theme of kind of that, that regular discernment of what is God calling me to do now? Like you're saying, whether it's brick and mortar school, homeschool, whether it's more writing now, more teaching now. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's great. Thank you. Yes. 
Yeah, and, and really, you know, if you're talking about about virtue, that's that's very much right within the the realm of virtue. So we're talking about the virtue of prudence, right? It's not only you know, there there are many goods, and and the virtue of prudence is is discerning among the goods, um, and choosing which good is you know at the right time and in the right manner. So I think that's a again a beautiful kind of application of all of those virtues coming together. It's such a crucial thing, and I think young people have a tendency to want to choose every good all at once, and then find themselves overwhelmed. I, I know this was. A learning experience for me at one point during my education, realizing I can't, I can't commit to everything, even though they're all good things. I have to pick some things to uh, to really focus on at this time. Yeah. And it's great advice for homeschooling parents as well. Is that you know you can look out there and look at there are so many good things to choose from when you're looking at curriculum options. Um, and you, it can be very easy to think I should do all of the good things. And then you, you, you get down and you start doing all the good things and you realize this is about 60 hours a week worth of education. Um, <laughs> and so you need to make some decisions about, you know, which of the good things do I need to let go of goods? They're all, they're all goods, but which are the right goods for my family and for the student? Um, and I think that's one of the, the regular challenges is, is right. When you see things that are good, it's, it's easy, it's easy to reject things that are obviously evil. You say, that's bad. I shouldn't do that. That's an easy one. It's much harder to. Uh, make those decisions about letting go of some of the goods. I was really curious on your, the you know, the website talks about your writing being about God, superheroes, Shakespeare, and other topics at the intersection of religion and popular culture. Um, and I think that obviously the, that little bit there at the end, the intersection of religion and popular culture is probably the key, but you can talk, can you talk a little bit about what um, really speaks to you or, or kind, of, kind of called you in the direction of that intersection between religion and popular culture in um, and probably some of your reading and your intellectual thought and then in your writing? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so some key authors in my formation are C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, G.K. Chesterton, and obviously they share an interest in fantasy, fairy tale, uh, you know, imaginative fiction, uh, but also, you know, have deeply philosophical understandings of this, like Tolkien's on fairy stories is such a seminal essay. Uh, G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, has a, a chapter called The Ethics of Elfland about what fairy tales revealed to him in his conversion process about the kind of moral nature of man. And so I think inspired by that, I've been very interested in what the kind of uh, stories within popular culture, you know, including science fiction and fantasy and superheroes, uh, have to say. Uh, you know, whether whether intentionally or not, there's often some interesting philosophical nugget to to be mined there, and uh, we can both, you know, I certainly am a am a fan, uh, and also hopefully a uh, a savvy reader of of these pieces of culture and so uh you'll find you know pieces that i've written about uh superhero films and superhero storytelling trying to get at you know what you know this version of batman is saying about the uh the city and justice uh you know what uh, this version of superman is saying about inspiration and idealism and uh our kind of human aspirations right uh so i've been really interested in how we tell and retell these stories and what the philosophical and religious themes are that are embedded within them as you were 
as you were discussing this, I was immediately thinking of, of course, these things came about at the time when they did as science is, you know, building and building and building the, the atomic bomb is coming along, you know, and, mm. and all of these things. But here you've got, like you say, Tolkien, Lewis, these other people who are bringing to a certain extent myth back you know, the, the stories that we all long to hear these men who are great men or, you know, and I'm sure as, as you've probably commented on, sometimes they're not really great men, but maybe they're great men in the eyes of some in society or whatever. So it's just, it's an interesting, I hadn't really, I thought about some of those things, but I hadn't put together what, until you mentioned those people and started talking about that, that this is an appropriate outlet, it seems like for, for people today, we have a desire for this and most of the world doesn't share our Catholic faith. But yeah, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before, but that's a something that occurs to me. It's like a, a good way to reach folks who are, have that interest, but aren't thinking along. Yeah, it's a new way to reach some folks. Yeah, I'll I'll take a moment since we're since we're on this topic and uh, put in a plug for the convention uh, Doxicon. This is the Christian sci-fi and fantasy convention. Um, usually, it's held uh, sometime in the fall here uh, in the kind of greater DC area. Uh, but it's a wonderful time bringing together. Uh, Christians of a number of denominations who are interested in uh, fantasy, science fiction, kind of nerd culture, and what uh, you know a theological perspective on a, these stories can be. So, um, I gave I gave a talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe at a previous Doxicon. Uh, my my wife Leah Sargent has uh, has spoken about you know any number of uh, fantasy and science fiction interests there, including uh, Diane Duane's So You Want to Be a Wizard, uh, which is interestingly a book that plays a role early on in her own conversion story, uh, even though it's not it's not a like piece of Christian fantasy per se, and yet there's some truth within it that was important in her own uh, development. So Doxicon, uh, lots of interesting people talking about Christian perspectives on science fiction and fantasy and nerd culture uh look it up and uh you know if you're if you're around you can get tickets and come when is that it looks like it's november 3rd and 4th um, yes the upcoming doxicon uh is november 3rd and 4th at uh, marymont university in arlington virginia that brings me to another question that I was interested in, in seeing some of your writing and also it looks like some of your kind of other hobbies and activities is involved in some tabletop gaming, both in, yeah. uh, it sounds like participating, but also in, in creation. Can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe uh, some of the links between some of your, your, your academic interests and your writing and, uh, and, and reading and maybe how that plays into um, how you, you view uh, something like, like tabletop gaming both as uh, getting involved maybe as a, as a player and participant, but then leading into to creation? Absolutely. Uh, this is this is a great question. I could talk for a long time about this, but I'll try to uh, uh, try to give more of the capsule version. So um, tabletop role-playing games, very interesting medium where you're creating a story, right? You're You're telling a story, but you're creating a story collaboratively with people around your table. So in the sort of archetypical example, you have, you know, one player is the the game master, 
serving as narrator and rules, you know, arbiter and uh, you know, voice of all the non-main characters, and then the other players are each playing a protagonist in a story, say a fantasy, a fantasy quest narrative where they're, you know, on some kind of uh, engaged in some kind of adventure and rolling dice to see how their characters fare, you know, moment to moment. So this is, you know, in a storytelling tradition, but it's not being kind of, you know, polished by a single author and then uh, presented to an audience. This is very participatory, you know, essentially uh, a partially improv story with contributions from the game master, the other players, the dice, uh, the rules written by the game designer, uh, and, you know, whatever kind of uh, setting that uh, has been decided on, whether that's a setting right out of a book someone's written or a setting that's also been collaboratively generated by the, you know, individuals playing at the table. So, you know, the fact that, you know, each story is going to be different and each experience is going to be different uh, is part of the part of the appeal here uh, and a kind of exciting thing and an empowering thing is that each participant who is playing is being asked to be a storyteller, right? And so, you know, the skills you develop include skills that will help when you're telling, you know, if you're if you're a, a, an author or writer who wants to tell stories on your own, you'll have gained some skills from creating stories collaboratively at the gaming table. You also just gain skills at collaboration, right? Because a game, a tabletop role-playing game is essentially a conversation. Uh, and like other conversations, it has rules. It's just that some of these rules are more explicit, like, you know, uh, when you do this in the game, roll this many dice and add this number. And some of the rules are the same type of implicit rules we're used to in other conversations, like try not to talk over each other, you know, uh, defer to the host uh, when they're, you know, speaking about uh, things that have to do with just the logistics of your uh, uh, conversational setting, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, I guess I was, I guess what I was building towards is, you know, role-playing games are this collaborative storytelling endeavor, and both the collaboration and the storytelling are honed by participating in this hobby. Yeah, I had a timely experience just this weekend that I was playing a role-playing game with like three other, um, I guess, classical Catholic teachers and my son. It was a Gothic sort of setting that we've just started up, but afterward we were kind of collaborating and comparing it because it's our first session kind of all doing this to like improv a little bit of that a little bit like our experiences in seminar discussions where you know we're trying to figure out how do we play off each other how do we complement each other even in telling the story you know so to to not cut each other off to not you know so it was we were we were just actually reflecting on this like how can we do this better how can we how can we get this so that it's working really smoothly and and telling a great story? So just had that experience within the last couple of days, as a matter of fact, but really fun. That's fantastic. Uh, I can talk a little about my design experience. I've built a couple of uh, I built a couple of games and contributed to some games. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of things in the kind of uh, the indie world of RPGs. So, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room is Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I've played some Dungeons and Dragons and had fun, but there's, there's other games that are kind of more, uh, more my jam, I suppose. Uh, and so um, there's a game I wrote about 
uh, when I wrote my my piece on role playing games as collaborative storytelling, I talked about running a campaign of Masks, which is a game about young superheroes finding their place in the world. Uh, a game designed by Magpie Games, and uh, you know that was one of the first like long campaigns I ran, and that was you know really fun. Players got really into it, and we built I think a wonderful world and story together. Uh, so some games I've created you know in in that mode uh using some of using some mechanical inspiration from uh, uh from masks include uh autumn triduum which is a game about religious sisters confronting the forces of darkness so this is a heavily heavily catholic game uh set at uh uh you know all hallows eve and all saints day and all souls day and you're playing as religious sisters uh you know dealing with some kind of you know su- supernatural danger and relying on uh your you know bonds with your sisters and your your faith in in God and you know the intercession of the saints to make it through so uh a game that you know has some some spookiness and some gothicness but you know ultimately is about a uh a universe uh you know where good wins out uh that's the that's the design intention at least um and uh some games I've published include the great soul train robbery a a weird western allegorical game about desperados robbing the train to hell so crazy cowboy stuff and you know meditations on damnation and redemption all in one package uh and also back again from the broken land a game about small adventurers sharing stories on the long walk home from an epic war and if that sounds like it's inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien's *The Lord of the Rings*. It is. You're right. You got me. Uh, this is a you know heavily Hobbit-themed game about little people who ended up in this big epic conflict, and then the game is about their uh, their burdens, their uh, reflections, the meals they share as they're making their way home in the aftermath of the the fall of the Doom's Lord. And one other one that I'd seen that I was just uh, curious about, especially particularly given your background in Shakespeare. I know there's the mention of a um, a Shakespearean fighting game. Can you tell us what would what would lead you to an inspiration to think, you know what this world needs? I think we need a Shakespearean fighting game. I think that's a space <laughs> that needs to exist. Yeah. Um, so that's, and that's a board game, right? You know, so uh, another kind of part of the whole realm of tabletop called No Holds Bard, B-A-R-D, Bard. Uh, and that, you know, that's just for fun, right? That's just like, what if, what if you could, you know, put on a board, uh, Hamlet from Hamlet and Othello from Othello and Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing and the bear from The Winter's Tale and just have them fight it out and see who would win. Uh, so it's a, you know, a kind of tongue in cheek, uh, you know, hopefully like fun and uh, Shakespeare nerdy uh, board game that, you know, gives people a chance to mash up Shakespeare characters, you know, fight to be the last character standing and that get to tell like funny stories like, wow, that was crazy. And that game, Puck went around giving everybody donkey heads until Richard III managed to sneak up behind him and poison him. <laughs> but you shared with us an article that we will put in our show notes about about games and the community that develops from them and some of your wife, Leah's experiences playing those. I was I really appreciate you sending that and I'm I know our listeners will enjoy reading that as well. And I'm glad she came up. She was a guest at our Call to Holiness retreat for our students the last school year. Yes, that's wonderful. So 
I'm noticing a theme of collaboration with your theater and with role-playing games and something we haven't yet gotten to, but we will get to here in a minute about the book that you are publishing. It, by the time this episode airs, it will be out into the world. It's There's a lot of collaborative, a lot of collaboration going on here. Um, well then, Stephen, with your providential timing on the, the word selection. <laughs> there is, I, I should say, I collaborated with my wife, Leah, on Back Again from the Broken Land. So I want to you know, give give credit to her as a game designer as well. She's she's multi-talented. She's, a, as you said, a, a speaker, a writer, uh, and uh, you know, a game designer in her own right. I really enjoyed her comments on on community at the retreat where she spoke and here it echoed in what your in some of your comments here about the opportunities the the games offer to to build that. It, so maybe this is going back a, a bit, but in addition to the great deal of fun that I know these games are because I enjoy them with my children and with friends and and things like that, um, it seems like you 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 appreciate something that, again, something that seems to be missing from our culture today, like growing up, my parents were always getting together with other families to play cards. There'd be card night or whatever, and all the families would come together. So I'd be playing with their, the other family's children and things. And it seems like that slipped away from what I've seen for the most mm. part. There's, I don't hear that in the same way, but that, maybe that's from my life, but it sounds like you've, you've seen that, you've seen that and kind of in, in captured that in your your life with this, with other families and things. Is that, is that, is that right? Is that, am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think as our children get older right now, we have a, a three-year-old and a one-year-old as our children get older, it will be easier to incorporate them more directly into family game night. Uh, at the moment, what we've sometimes done is you know, we'll, we'll have people over uh, and then, you know, put, put the girls to bed and then, you know, play something while they're asleep or this summer, one thing we did, we we hosted a whole day of gaming at the house. It was called SargeCon, and it was you know focused on games that I designed, a sort of mini convention, uh, you know, slash you know all day game party. And for that, you know, not only were my kids there, but some of the attendees brought their kids as well. So we had some babysitters hired to you know be like chasing around the kids while grownups were playing games at you know, like every available surface in the house, and that that was. That was, you know, fun, you know, organized chaos uh, and, you know, I think a good uh, moment of bringing family together uh, with the uh, with the hobby. I certainly look forward to the future when uh, my girls are old enough to be more uh, more an active part of the uh, the games that we play as a family. Yeah, that's really fantastic. And I think, again, I mean, everything certainly that you're talking about there with with collaboration, with community. Um, and we mentioned, you know, we were blessed to have your, your wife join us for for the retreat, and and there she was much talking about community building, building off her of her own book, the and kind of building the benefit option as far as mm -hmm. talking about community. Um, and then I know we just mentioned that that you've got a book coming up um, about saintly creatures. Can you tell us more about uh, about that book and maybe what some of the inspirations were for you in uh, in writing it? Yeah, happy to. So. This is super fun. I had the chance to write a children's book for the new uh, Word on Fire Spark imprint, uh, children's book publishing line at Word on Fire. And the book is called Saintly Creatures, 14 Tales of Animals and Their Holy Companions. And it's a collection of saint stories themed around these uh, friendships between saints and animals. So we have St. Francis of Assisi and the Wolf of Gubbio. We have Blessed James Hio in Bake and the Tiger, whose cave he hides in with other Korean Catholics while they're undergoing persecution. We have 
Saint Roberga, who uh, performs a miracle that brings about the resurrection of a goose. Uh, and I got to pull stories from all over the history of the church. You know, we tried to make sure there were uh, saints from many different eras and and places, uh, men and women saints, you know, all of whom had these, you know, exciting, interesting, you know, humorous friendships with animals, uh, because we thought that would be, you know, appealing to a young audience. And it, it has been. Uh, my my daughters are enjoying the book, and my my youngest uh, likes to just point at the animals and make their their noises or her approximations of of their noises as we go. Yeah, it's um it was a really exciting experience to 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 write the book. You know, research these saints. Uh, I learned about some saints I didn't know about before, and uh, I learned more about saints that I did know about. Got to to dive deep into some of the well known stories like uh, Saint Francis and the Wolf, and get a you know strong understanding of you know why the story has lasted and. Uh, you know, presented in a telling that's accessible to a young audience. Sounds great. It's I'm looking forward to reading it. That so to get to the fourteen, I'm sure you had to have some selection process. Did you design a game to sort through <laughs> the options to come to the fourteen who made it into the book? Uh, yeah, like a like a bracket sort of tournament <laughs> uh, setup. <laughs> it's more that my uh, my editor and I had to uh, had to think like you know. We, we put together a longer list and then thought about what was going to be a good balance in the book and also just like what exactly was on theme. Like we were, we really liked this one story. It's St. Helenus and he rides on a crocodile and we're like, oh, that'd be so great. We have art of him riding on the crocodile, but the crocodile isn't his friend in the story, right? The crocodile represents the forces of darkness. He, he smites the crocodile. He rides on the crocodile to show that he has power over it. And then he, he smites it to show that the forces of darkness cannot prevail against good and we're like this isn't quite what we're doing here this is a different this story goes in a different book you know uh with saint george and the dragon uh but here we're going for stories where what's revealed in the relationship between the saints and the animals is this sort of um edenic return right you know where where the saint as the friend of god now is is able to do what you know what adam did in the garden when uh humanity was you know uh in a sort of harmony with the natural world and could give names to the animals and be a a, a benevolent uh lord over the the animal realm um you know and the, the stories where you know humans are in conflict with animals are a sort of different different genre and telling a different lesson so we kind of had to sadly you know not include helenus in the crocodile and uh stick with uh stick with stories where there's you know a like rapport uh between the saint and the animal you know not that there aren't you know scary moments in here like we have saint brendan and the whale and of course his monks initially are really frightened when they you know go to an island and it turns out it's actually this giant whale that they've accidentally made landfall on so but uh but in that story the the whale is an instrument of god and helps bring them along in their seafaring pilgrimage so we thought that one that one would work Sounds great. And so there was, I'm guessing, some collaboration with the illustrator, as well as your editor and a few other folks to bring bring the book to to the world. Yeah. So Anita Bargijani is the illustrator, and she did a tremendous job. I'm really, I feel really blessed uh, to have her art in this book, because of course, the art is going to be what grabs people. Uh, you know, I hope the stories keep them coming back, but I think the art is going to be what grabs people when they pick up this book at first. And she uh, has these wonderful full page illustrations of each saint 
uh, you know, with their with their animal companion in a sort of you know icon esque pose. Right, she brings in some medieval design elements as well as uh, kind of you know vibrant modern sensibility to each piece, and so you should you know at 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 least listeners go and look up saintly creatures so you can look at some of this art, and then maybe maybe it'll sell you on uh, buying this book. Not just that, not just the art. It sounds great. We will of course include a link to that in our show notes for folks to find that. As we are getting close to the end of our conversation, you gave some advice to. Um, folks meeting Shakespeare for the first time earlier already. Do you have any other words of wisdom or encouragement for aspiring writers or actors in general, game designers, anything else you'd like to leave with us? Uh, keep keep notes all the time. You know, carry your notebook around or, or jot it down in your uh, notes app on your phone if you've got one of those. Just um, as you have these thoughts, uh, record them. You never know when a new project will emerge that that needs you to turn back to you know something you'd worked out uh you know years ago even right ideas you'd been you've been kicking around in the past sometimes prove to be exactly you know what uh what's needed for a later project and so you know be open to the promptings of, of providence and uh make that easier by keeping uh keeping notes for yourself to return to so Alexi, is your website the best place to to find sort of the repository of your work and and on from there? Is that where folks should head? Uh, yes, people can look at alexisargent.com. I need to update it. So thank you for reminding me. But that has a, <laughs> that has a good number of my articles on it. Um, and if you're on social media, you can you can find me at Alexi Sargent on Twitter. The thing is just spelling Sargent right. It's S-A-R-G-E-A-N-T. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, I'm happy to, happy to hear from folks if they're, uh, thinking about their own creative projects or, you know, uh, educational endeavors, uh, always happy to chat with people. Super. This has been a great conversation, better than I was expecting. And I was, I had high hopes. I knew it was going to be great already. It's even better than that. So thank you so much, Alexi, for coming to visit with us today and for um, all that you've left with us to think about and enjoy. Um, and please thank Leah again. We are so glad and grateful to have both of you guys interacting here with our Colby families. Thanks so much. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Subscribe to the Colby Cast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem dei gloriam.